Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of Titus. If you don't, the text for today is written on the back of the insert. If you look at the notes, we're looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, part 2. And in an attempt to emphasize the connected nature of this week and last week's message, I actually just continued the outline, starting in point 3. That is not a typo, that is intentional. Um, these two messages work together, build together, and um, inform and complete one another. What we're looking at in this passage is the character and giftedness of elders in the local church. And I know from my own study, and I know from my own exposure in the church that studying of church polity, church leadership, uh, is not one of the best sellers. If you go in the Christian bookstore, you won't see any runaway bestsellers of that topic. And yet I think we'll find, I hope we have found, that this is actually very profitable, very helpful. Um, so let's read our text, and then we'll dive right in. Titus 1, 5 to 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Lord God, what we see here in this passage is, is a model for maturity, a model of what you want all of your children to be. And so Lord, as we study this, especially the character and the giftedness, Lord, we, we want you to build that character in our lives. So we pray that you'd have your way with us and that you would grow us in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we can get started, we've got to review some of the context. If you remember, Paul was with Titus in Crete. It's an island off the coast of Greece where Paul had planted some number of churches through evangelism. And these churches were still in their formative stages. And, and because there was no prior Christian base and there wasn't even much of a Jewish base prior to that, all of these believers were first generation, young, immature and so Paul was unable to, to set elders in place. So he leaves Titus behind and he goes on ahead with the rest of his missionary party. And, and he tells Titus that he's left him there to set in order the things that are lacking, literally. There are things in this, these churches that are forming that are still deficient, that still need to come into shape. And the number one issue is the need for godly leadership in the church. And we talked last week about how even in this passage, um, elder and overseer are interchangeable and through other passages like 1 Peter 5 that really an elder is an overseer is a pastor these aren't three offices but one and so where you see an elder you're seeing a pastor where you see a pastor you should be seeing an elder these, this is the biblical treatment on these terms and we talked about the priority and the importance of good leadership in the church and then we talked last week about the importance of the home life that really this is the first place Paul goes to. It's sandwiched, separated off from the rest of the list. If you look, um, if anyone is above reproach, verse 8, 
And then down in verse 7, for an overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. And so this above reproach sandwiches off the marriage and the family. We talked about how really that's the issue of first importance, of demonstrating character. It's easy to hide who you are. It's easy to put on a face. But your home life, your marriage, that's where the real you comes through. Your wife, your kids, they're going to see the real you. And so that's where Paul wants Titus to go to first. What we're going to look at now in, in the second half of this message is the character. And probably the character that's meant to be expressed in that home life and in the public life. Um, it's, it's, it's a list of nots and do's. He must be this, must not be this. So let's dive in the character of elders in the local church. Character of elders in the local church. And we'll look first at who he must not be. We must not be. And let's just read the list here. Starting in the middle of verse 7, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And what sort of summarizes all of these knots is, is, is passions, bodily passions. Let's just look at them one by one. Not arrogant. Literally, this is somebody who's self-willed or for the blank, he must not force his own way. You know, somebody who always has to do things their way. They force their will upon other people. It's a sort of combination of pushiness and arrogance. Um, they're going to do it his way. And that's not a godly character trait. That's not how God would have us to be. He wants us to defer to one another. He wants us to bear with one another. He wants us to show honor to one another. And so, immediately, these, these men, these pictures of maturity, these, these godly leading men in the church must not be this way. And the backdrop of this, again, is the culture at Crete. Jump, jump down a little further into chapter 1. Paul describes the culture that Titus is in. And part of the reason why these requirements are so essential is because the culture is so very different. The culture is not like this. Look at verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That is the culture in Crete of Timothy's day. And that's what he's dealing with. And this new church is coming out of that culture. And as new believers, not mature, a lot of that culture is going to be sticking with them. And so this character is all the more important for Paul to spell out what he's looking for. He must not be arrogant. He must not force his own way. We think of love, the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not insist on its own way. Next, we see not quick-tempered or violent. And I put these two together. There's a lot of overlap. A person given to anger, a person given to, to becoming angry, and the violence acting upon that fits sort of together. There's really five in this list, and I've abbreviated it to four because of that overlap. And the basic picture here is just not a bully. Um, you, you know what I mean. The people who either physically are bullies or just their temper intimidates people. And so you know not to not to provoke so-and-so because you don't want to deal with them when they're angry. And again, that's not a mark of, of godliness. The Proverbs warn not even to associate with someone given to anger. You know, and a temper. 
And getting angry is not a mark of, of godliness. It's not a mark of masculinity. You know, our culture, movies may disagree with that, but it's not the case. Meekness, controlling one's spirit, that's, that's what Jesus Christ was like. And that's who he would have us to be. So not a bully, not someone who intimidates, um, either with their body or their words. Not a drunkard. And, and Paul does not forbid that elders... Um, partake of alcohol, he simply forbids drunkenness. Not someone given to or addicted to wine. And of course, in the first century, this was common at just about every meal. Um, and so Paul is, is not, on the one hand, commanding abstinence. On the other hand, he's making a very sharp line. This is somebody, again, who has their body under control. And, and the problem with alcohol, we learn in Ephesians 5, is that it, it loses self-control. And so this elder, this godly person, must have their body under control, have their mind under control at all times. And so getting drunk doesn't fit with that. And finally, we see not greedy for gain. Not greedy for gain. And this is absolutely a marked contrast to the culture in Crete. Again, what typifies the, the Cretan culture and the false teachers is down in verse 11, um, they teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. There's a greed motive. And I don't want to steal too much thunder from Greg's message next week, but oftentimes false teaching is motivated by greed, desire to obtain, and that, that characterized the culture of Crete. And so this must be far from these elders. Paul warns in 1 Timothy about the mistake of thinking that godliness is a way to get money, to, to get gain. He writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so these, these are the character traits not to be seen. And, and as I said, the, the overriding um, common factor between all of them is strong passion. Someone who's arrogant and pushes their way. Someone who's quick-tempered and violent. Someone who can't hold down their spirit. Um, who can't control their spirit, but when they're angry, it shows. Somebody who can't resist having a couple too many drinks. Somebody who the enticement of money draws them out. I think it all sort of gets summed up in Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And it's a very apt picture. Uh, in, the, in those days, your city walls are your defenses. And so a man, literally, who has no control over his own spirit, is like a city broken into without any walls. And the picture is this, that such a city that has no walls to protect it, any passing band of raiders, any passing group of people can, can make it a stronghold, can set up shop, can rule it. So is the man who has no control over his own spirit. Any passion that rises up from the heart, whether it's the desire for money, or whether it's I'm angry, or I need to have my way, or I need to have another drink, any of those desires he has no resistance to. He's like that city with no defenses, and so desire after desire after desire set up shop in his heart, rule him. And this is not a mark of maturity. This is, should not be a mark of the leaders in the church. So this is who he must not be. Thankfully, we don't just have this negative picture, but Paul tells us who he must be as well. We see that in verse 8. But hospitable, 
a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now again, this list is a list of six and I think there's some overlap on two of them so for brevity's sake, I've, I've stacked them up but again, we'll look at them one at a time. The first, hospitable. Hospitable. Um, hospitality was a huge virtue in that culture in Greece in the first century. And when we think of hospitality, we think of having our friends over, having dinner parties, having a game night or something. That's not the picture here at all. Literally, hospitality is the word philo, love, or brotherly love, like Philadelphia, xenos, strangers, like xenophobia. It's a lover of strangers. That's what the word means. Hospitality really is the practice of opening up your home, opening up your life to people you don't know especially people in need who you don't know. Remember, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He said, you invite your friends over and they invite you back over and you have your reward. That's not fully what's in view here. Really, it's this notion of opening up your home, opening up your life. And in America, many of us are tempted to view our home as our castle. It's our domain and it's uncomfortable having people in your home. And I know this firsthand. I, I, I like my home a certain way. I can feel uncomfortable. I can be stretched. And, and the, the news of the gospel is God wants that part of me to die. And he wants that part of you to die. He wants us to open our homes, to open our lives, and not just to our friends and the people we're comfortable with and the people we feel safe with, but with, with those who are in need and, and with strangers. It's that heart attitude. It's not a law that everyone needs to go out and and find someone to invite over, but it should be what characterizes the church. It is what characterized the early church. Um, this notion of hospitality. And it's commanded to believers. In Hebrews 13.2, the author of Hebrews writes to the church, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So there it is. There's the command to everyone. This isn't just something that typifies elders. This is something that should typify God's people. Um, it, it should be our heart attitude, not one of fear and protection and castle walls, but open doors and invitation and an open table. And thankfully, there are many, many in this church who do this, and I have been the uh, gracious recipient of such hospitality and seen it employed, and so it is such a good thing to meet new people. And so this should mark leaders. And, and again, this list, this is for everyone. I said this um, last week. I said this uh, six months ago when we went through 1 Timothy, but it's not as though God's called the elders, the leaders of the church, the pastors of the church to some different standard. Rather, there is one standard, Jesus Christ, and then Paul wants Timothy and Titus to, to pick off the people who've reached a certain level of maturity. The illustration I gave last time, it's as though the Lord wanted us all to run hard in a certain direction, like a marathon. He wants us all running that way, full tilt. And then he has Timothy and Titus come along and pick off the front runners. There's not a single thing on this list that is not elsewhere commanded to other believers. So, so don't think of this as the standard for those men, but rather the standards for all of us. The picture is elders, leaders, need to have achieved a certain level of maturity, a certain level of modeling this, not perfection. But this is a standard we are all called to, and so this is a text for all of us. Next, a lover of good. 
a lover of good. And again, 1 Corinthians 13, that's the section on love, speaks of this. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Or Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, the thing is, we all love something. Things delight us. And if you're a lover of the truth, then you'll have a revulsion to error. If you're a lover of what's good, you'll be repulsed by what is evil. And so the challenge is, what do we love? What do we delight in? And this can get tricky sometimes. I find in my own heart, I'll be watching a movie or a television program, and TV and movies are great at portraying evil as good, as admirable, as enjoyable. And you can watch it, and your heart can be cheering along. Um, there's been some recent blockbusters that put out some really charismatic bad guys. And they're fun to watch. And sure, by the end of the movie, they get their comeuppance, they get what's due them. But pretty much during the whole movie, you're just delighting in them. You're just, you're just every moment they're on screen, you're, you're paying attention. And that can be dangerous, because in my own heart at least, I can find myself cheering on and applauding evil. And I'll tell myself, I know it's evil, but man, he makes it look fun. And so we've got to be careful that we keep a pure heart, that we love what is good, not what is evil. We hold fast to it. And again, this is what marks maturity. Next, self-controlled and disciplined. And I grabbed discipline from the end of the list and put it here because these complement each other very well. Self-controlled speaks to mental discipline. The mind, the thought life, the passions. And discipline speaks to bodily control, physical control. And both of these are important. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 speaks... I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And, and this is really the marked contrast with what we saw up in the what he must not be. If what characterized what we should not be seeing is a person out of control, a person who has all these desires for anger and pushing their own way and having another drink and money. And here's somebody who's got their mind and their body under control. That's, that's what marks this. That word self-control, self-discipline shows up a lot in the rest of this book. And it's a very important, very important trait. In fact, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. God wants us to be growing in our control of our mind, in our control of our passions, in our control of our bodies so that we can bring everything into obedience to Christ. And finally, we see that you must be upright and holy. That word for upright could be translated just. Um, this is somebody who is fair, somebody who, who obeys the law. This is somebody who does what is right. Holy is this notion of direction, Godward direction and piety. And together they sort of bring forth this fruit of good works. A person who keeps God's law, keeps man's law, who has a Godward direction. And that is really the overwhelming thesis and theme of this book, this notion of good works. Just scan with me through Titus. Um, verse 1, we saw this two weeks ago. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And then we go down to 
um, 1, 16. What, what characterizes these false teachers? They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. Chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And then, in a theological section, starting in verse 11, we find out that one of the reasons we were saved was for good works. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and unworldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So why did Jesus die? Who gave himself for us, verse 14, to redeem us from all lawlessness. So he died so we could be forgiven. He died so our sins could be paid for and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus died to forgive your sins, and he also died so that we would be a people zealous for good works. He, he died for both of those. And then down in chapter 3, verse 8, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then finally, verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. And you see the emphasis in this book on good works, to, to rid themselves, the church to rid themselves of their prior behavior, of their culture that they've come out of. But what's important here, and, and sort of moving on to our next point, is it's surprising that with the emphasis on good works, the emphasis on godliness, that Paul says the first thing you need are elders. Now that doesn't necessarily jive. If the problem is good works, isn't the first thing you need is to encourage the people to good works like he does in the rest of the book? Why does Paul start his, his list of things that need to be set in order with the need, the urgent need, so important that he left Titus behind for elders? Well, it comes in the final qualification, the final must for elders. We see that in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so here we see the giftedness of elders in the local church. This is the skill, the ability um, that they must have is really the one gift that separates elders from deacons in, in Timothy. By the way, another indication of the formative state of the church. There's no mention of deacons here. Paul's just worried about getting some elders. Um, and so this is the giftedness, and, and we'll see it in three points. Clinging to the trustworthy word as taught. Literally, he must be holding himself or clinging to the trustworthy word as taught. And I, I love that picture. It's a picture of dependence. It's purposeful. These men are holding themselves, clinging to God's word. They're clinging to what's been taught them. 
And, and the reason why we need to do that is because we have a tendency to drift. If, if you're not intentionally holding yourself fast to God's word, if you have mistakenly bought the notion that you've, you've studied enough, you've learned enough, and now you can sort of coast, you don't need to continue feeding and growing and clinging to God's word, you will drift away from it. You will. These are men who are clinging to, holding themselves fast to God's word, to the trustworthy word as taught. The faithful word, as taught. And this, this brings up a couple of implications. The first, a student before he becomes a teacher. These men are students before they become teachers. Notice that. They've been taught. They're holding fast to this trustworthy word, as taught. Back, back in the first century, before the printing press, I'm doubting many of these local churches even had their own copy of the scriptures. So most of what they've received has been oral teaching from people who do know the scriptures. Or if there was a copy of the Bible, it probably wasn't communal and passed around. Rather, it was read from regularly. And so this is somebody who's been taught. This is somebody who's taken the seat of a learner long before he takes the position of a teacher. You know, there's, there are many who want to skip over that. Taking the position of a learner is humbling. It takes time. It takes work. Wouldn't it just be so much easier to teach no, these are men who have held firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. And of course, that then begs the question, well, what word? Well, for us, it's, it's the whole scripture, but Paul's already given some indication of what the central message of this word is. Back in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The content of the word is first and foremost the gospel. And this, I think, helps bridge some of this question that I came to. When you got a book that's so emphasizing good works, that's so emphasizing the need for people to be zealous, careful, purposeful, energetic, and pursuing good works, why is the first thing he wants, the, the most important thing, the reason he left Titus behind, we need elders. And we see it in verse 1, and we'll see it down here. It's the connection between truth and good works. The connection between truth and good works. Look in verse 1 again at that. Paul was made an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which corresponds to or accords to godliness. There is a truth, there's a teaching that corresponds to godliness. You start to see the answer to this picture. So, so if, God, if a lack of godliness and good works is the problem, rather than trying to enter in at sort of a fruit stapling level of trying to do behavior modification, Paul's going at the teaching level. Paul's aiming for the doctrinal content because he knows there's a teaching that corresponds to, that produces, that bears good fruit. That's why he's so emphatic about elders. They need to be in place, these men who have a command of the word and are able to teach. So first, he's a student before he becomes a teacher. And, and the important thing about being a student is it also forces you to do what you're learning. The, the danger of skipping over learning is twofold. One, you can be in error and ignorant. We saw in 1 Timothy, certain men who want to be teachers of the law, even though they know not the things of which they confidently speak and make assertions. The second is you might know things, but there's no one there to hold you to do things. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why doctrinal teaching can be in, in 
decline is people get this notion that because they've met people who know things but don't do things, that that's useless. And I love this word on Ezra. Ezra 7.10, if you remember, Ezra was the priest when Israel returned from Babylon, he taught Israel. And Ezra 7.10 writes, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now that's the proper order right there. You gotta study the word and you gotta do the word and only then are you qualified to teach the word. Ezra studied the law of the Lord to do it, to teach statutes and rules in Israel. And so this, th- these men must first be students before they become teachers. As we've seen in their lives and as we've seen in their marriages, they have to first be doing what they know before they're qualified to turn around and tell other people what to do and instruct other people. Uh, God does not want hypocrites leading his church. A student before he becomes a teacher. And the other thing I noticed from here is the one sufficient source for all teaching, counsel, and admonition. And it really comes through in that word holding themselves to or clinging to. These aren't people relying on multiple sources of authority, multiple truths. They're just holding fast. Like like a sailor in a storm lashing himself to the mast. These these men are just clinging to God's word. They're not clinging on to pop psychology. They're not clinging on to Oprah or Dr. Phil They're not clinging on to the wisdom of the world. They're they're clinging on to God's truth as taught. And that then implies this is their source for what they're about to do in the rest of this verse of giving instruction and contradicting. It's sufficient. Their counsel, their instruction comes from here. It it doesn't come from someplace else. You know, 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. We know this. All scripture is inspired of God and Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, the man of God may be competent, fully equipped for every good work. Fully equipped for every good work. And that's, that's what these men are doing. They're just clinging to, they're not holding to anything else. They're, they're holding to God's truth because they believe that God's truth is sufficient for healthy teaching, that God's truth is sufficient for guarding the flock from wolves, that God's truth is sufficient for how to pursue good works and godliness. And then that clinging to and that knowledge of and that faithfulness to live and to do equips them for two things. Notice how that works. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, purpose statement, the reason why they're equipped to do the following task is because they've been clinging faithfully to the taught word so that they may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So first, exhort, exhort. That word instruction is to counsel or exhort one another. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily just always teaching, preaching. It can be counseling. It can be one-on-one instruction. But these are people who are competent with the word to be able to teach literally healthy doctrine. Truth that promotes health. And, and we'll see, and, and this is what Jesus said, and, and this is what Paul's going to tell Titus, the, the, the test of whether teaching is good and healthy is what type of fruit it bears. And again, that's the relationship here. If you look down in verse 16... These false teachers, the final word on them, sort of summing up what Jesus says in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. 
They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. The final proof of these false teachers being false teachers, who we will hear more about next week, is the fruit they bear. Vines don't produce figs, and figs, trees don't produce um, thorns and thistles. You know a tree by its fruit. That's why in this list, this really comes last. This ability with the word. Oh, it's essential, but first and foremost, what's their life look like? This is what makes um, the process of candidating and, and um, interviewing potential pastors so difficult because it's really hard over the phone, over email, or and over Skype to, to figure out, get a handle on someone's marriage and their home and their godliness. It's a lot easier to get a hold of someone's knowledge of the word. It's a lot easier to listen to some sermons and look at a degree, and, and that's good and it's necessary. But the, the heaviest portion of these requirements are the hardest for us to figure out from afar. It's one of the reasons I rejoice that, that, um, that we're hiring someone, at least that I know, and I can testify to as a godly man. And, and it's, it's one of the, the reasons why relationships, working with people who are known, is, is such a better option. Because the most important aspect of this list is the hardest to ascertain from afar. And so these, these men are exhorting. And, and here's sort of the connection again between the good works and why elders are the, are the first order of business for Titus. And that's you cannot do what you do not know. You cannot do what you do not know. There can be a tendency um, in Christians to want to sort of skip over the teaching after all, don't we all know how to love each other? Isn't, shouldn't we just go out and love people, be kind to people, um, you know, be, be generous? So do we really need to dive into teaching and doctrine, what the Bible says? And after all, we've all met those, those people who know stuff, but they're jerks. And, and Paul's logic is the same here as it was in 1 Timothy. There is no real authentic loving. There are no real authentic good works without truth informing it. Now, sure, we know it's, you've got to be kind and loving and generous, but frequently the particular application is difficult. Any of you who are parents know this. We're supposed to love our kids, but it takes wisdom and skill to know whether my child needs the love of a hug, the love of instruction, the love of rebuke and correction, the love of patience, the love of saying, no, you, you can't eat candy all day. You need wisdom to inform what love looks like, and there's plenty of people trying to love their kids. Who, who do terrible jobs because they're not letting their, their parenting be informed by God's word. There's plenty of people out there, friends, who in the name of love in, encourage um, adultery, encourage um, divorce and remarriage. They mean well. I mean, after all, if you're in love and God wouldn't want you to be unhappy, and they mean well, but their love is not informed by truth. And so truth that doesn't progress on to acts of love and good works is useless worse than useless, it'll bring condemnation. But, but to skip over that and just to try to move on to love is equally useless because it'll look like all sorts of things. Our culture in the name of love is affirming all sorts of things and behavior that, that God does not approve of. And so what Paul's saying is before Titus can go on and start exhorting the congregation to bear out good works, they need qualified godly men able to teach them what those good works are. I mean, look at the beginning of chapter 2. The doctrine that Paul has in mind is very, very practical. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, which is 
Older men must be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, must be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Teach what accords with sound doctrine, and then immediately he goes to how the older men, the older women, the younger women, and the younger men are supposed to act. You see, in Paul's mind, sound doctrine is closely and vitally related to good works. How is the church going to be ordered? How are older men going to be the godly men they should be? How are older women going to be the godly women they're supposed to be? How are younger women going to be the godly younger women they're supposed to be? How are younger men going to be the godly younger men they're supposed to be? Well, it's going to take sound doctrine. And, and Paul, at the end of this letter, is going to want Titus to return to him and to meet him at Nicopolis. And he, what is essential is that before Titus leaves, every local church has a handful, some sort of plurality, of qualified men able to teach sound doctrine that promotes this type of good works. That's the connection. That's why in a letter, short letter, that emphasizes over and over and over the need to separate from the pagan culture, the need to, to wash off and cast off all of those, those character traits, those besetting sins of the culture, why he says the very first thing we need is elders. Because in Paul's mind, doctrine is intensely practical. Intensely practical. You cannot do what you do not know. You cannot do what you do not know. And oftentimes what God said is the loving thing to do is not immediately intuitive. It's not immediately intuitive, oftentimes. And so we need to be submissive. We need to conform our minds to God's word. And we need to act in faith and obey and trust that he'll give the growth as we do that. And secondly, to refute those who contradict that's the, the final thing that they're to do, that this holding fast to the word equips them to do. And again, we're going to hear a lot about this next week as Paul goes into an extended portrait of these false teachers. Understand, this is not just minor error. Elsewhere in, in Paul's letters, he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's, Lord's bondservant, but not be quarrelsome, kind, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those from opposition. And that's, that's the type of correction, that gentle, patient, long-suffering correction that takes place when you're dealing with church family, when you're not dealing with issues that, that twist or tweak the gospel. But here, we're dealing with severe error. I mean, just jump down again to verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And the circumcision party are those Christians, quote-unquote, who insisted that salvation required faith plus adherence to the Mosaic law, most specifically circumcision, the sign of the Mosaic covenant. And the entire book of Galatians, the entire book of Galatians is written to refute that error. The entire Jerusalem church meets in Acts 15, you can read about it, to deal with that error. And they reject it. And the result is that a gospel that, that mixes faith and works is no gospel at all. I mean, notice again, Paul's very clear to separate faith and works. He doesn't want to separate them very far. 
But he wants to separate them. Again, look back up in verse one. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So he's, he's really only about faith and truth. Faith and truth. But that truth accords with godliness. He's, he's separating them. Make no mistake, I'm not here to call a message of faith and good works. Rather, I'm here to proclaim a message of faith and truth. But that message received will produce good works. You see how he, he keeps them distinct. He keeps them separate, but not very far apart. If you have the one, the other will follow. If you have really received the truth by faith, you will produce good works. And, and all of this, all of this flows out of an understanding of the gospel. All of this flows out of an understanding of, of God's message. And remember, we talked about this taught word, this faithful word, this oral instruction, most likely, that these men are holding to. And the danger, and the reason why they've got to be able to refute and contradict this, there are people who are going to rise up in the church to, to confuse the gospel, to twist the gospel, to add things to the gospel. And they're different in every age, but they're always the same. Inevitably, they're going to add works in to the message. They're going to twist that. They're going to say, you've got to do certain things. And then you'll be okay with God. And so I just want to close by, by reiterating that message. Lest anyone here not hear it, that message that Paul was intent, his apostleship was built around. Um, this, that message that these elders are clinging fast to and, and that equips them to teach in, in healthy doctrine. The message that all of us are born sinful, that the, the heart of sin is not necessarily the things we do. That's the fruit. But according to Romans 1, the heart of sin is the desire to do what I want because I want to do it when I want to do it. If you read Romans 1, it makes it very clear that really the heart of sin is a refusal to submit to God, a refusal to honor God. And, and so even nice moral people um, who, are, who are not united with Christ by faith are not doing their nice moral things because there's a great God they want to honor, but because they feel like it, because it pleases them, because that's just the type of person they are. And we're born that way, and we resist God's rule, and we resist being told what to do, and we, we stiffen our necks, and we buck at it. And because of that, because we don't value God's glory, because we don't love him, because we don't thank him, we insult his dignity and, and his holiness and his greatness demands a reckoning. And so all of us born as sinners, born doing evil things that flow out of the evil in our hearts because we want to live the way we want to live, all of us are headed for judgment. And, and God says that we all know a couple things. We all know right and wrong because we have consciences. We all know that wrong brings judgment because we all, after all, judge others who wrong us. I mean, every one of us here has, when we felt wronged by someone, either spoken a word of rebuke and reply, or some of us even physically struck people who've angered us enough, we, we get intuitively that doing wrong brings judgment. And so Paul says in Romans 2, we have no excuse if we think there's not a judgment coming. And we have a conscience that accuses and excuses us. And, and the last thing we all know is that works and law-keeping don't, don't justify I use this example all the time, but for every one of you who didn't get a speeding ticket last year, um, you did not receive a thank you letter and a check from the DMV, did you? 
And, and we can think of the insanity of a man on trial for murder listing as his defense all the laws he's never broken all of his life. Your Honor, I've, I've never committed perjury or forgery. I've never sold state secrets. I've never done kidnapping. He just has a list. And after all, Your Honor, I've only broken one law. Yes, I killed some people, but I'm very sorry, and I won't do it again. But I've, I've combed through the legal record, and there's over 3,000 laws I've kept perfectly every day of my life. And we smile at that. We think of the foolishness of that defense. But so many people that I meet, that's their planned defense when they stand before God. Yes, Your Honor, I've broken some of your rules, but I would like to point out all the things I have done. Law does not reward. Law does not justify unless it is kept perfectly. And we know that intuitively. We don't, we don't let criminals go because they kept some other law. And that leaves us then in a helpless state. And, and the good news is that God sent his son to die for us. Um, look, look at chapter 2, verse 11. He, Paul spells this out clearly in Titus. For the grace of God has appeared. Here's the good news. Bringing salvation for all people. Not just Jews, not just Greeks, not just those in Crete, but all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for the hope of our, of our and the blessed hope and appearing of our glorious, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And that's what the cross is about. Jesus comes to earth. He's God's son. He, he lives the life that you and I could never live perfectly. And then he goes on the cross. And, and on the cross, the, the amazing thing happens, what C.S. Lewis called the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus willingly took upon himself the sins of his people. Jesus willingly said, Father, punish me for what they did. And so the, the judgment and the justice that was headed our way gets diverted, and Jesus takes it. And Jesus says, Father, won't you view and treat as though they'd live my life those who are having faith in me? And so there's this swap where Jesus gets what you and I deserve, and you and I get treated as though we'd live Jesus' life. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way simply, he made him who knew no sin become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And he dies, and death can't hold him, and on the third day he rises again. And, and the good news is that by trusting, that from turning from whatever it is you're trusting in, your own good works, your own wisdom, your own way, I want to do it my way, turning from all those things and, and placing your trust solely in Christ, that you can be forgiven, you can be saved, you can have the power to obey God now, that this is the word that the elders are holding fast to. This is the word that accords and keeps with good fruit. This is the word that's in jeopardy by these false teachers who are coming up, and we'll hear about next week, who are going to twist and tweak and add to. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in closing, I just want to throw that out there, that we can never hear this too often. We dare not assume it. All of this character that we've seen that's not arrogant, not quick-tempered, all of this flows out of is gospel fruit. And again, I want to make the distinction between the root and the fruit. The root, as Paul said in verse 1, is faith in accordance with knowledge. A true gospel proclaimed, received by faith. That's what justifies. That's what unites us to Christ. That's what makes us God's children. And then that produces all this good fruit, all this character. If we skip over that, we end up with moralism. 
And so I just want to reemphasize that these godly men, these leaders, these elders in the local church, these are gospel men, as God would have all of us be, who are bearing the fruit of the gospel in their lives and, and have never stopped clinging to it, have never stopped clinging to God's word, and they're able to teach then and refute those who contradict. They're able not only to say what is true, but when error comes in, to be able to identify the error and authoritatively expose it. Not based on the authority they have, but the authority that comes with God's word. It's, it's a wielding of the sword of the Spirit. Well, the flickering lights must mean our, our time has come to an end. Um, anyway, if you have any questions about this, please talk to me or one of the elders or anyone here who'd love to talk to you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear God, we just thank you that in this church you have raised up godly men. It's my great joy to work alongside of, of the elders here. And Lord, we, we want to be a people who cling, who hold ourselves fast, who lash ourselves to your word and to your gospel. We want to be people who, who just never let it go, who never take it for granted, who never drift astray. And we want you, through our faith and trusting in you, to bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. We want to be a people zealous for good works. We want to be a people who are hospitable and lovers of good and selfless and self-controlled. We don't want to love money. We want to love you. But Lord, that takes a work in our heart, a work that only you can do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that you would give the grace and the increase and the growth, that you'd be pleased to glorify yourself today through opening our eyes, taking hearts of stone and making them hearts of flesh and giving life where there is none and light where there is darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.